Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Fade. Monday, March 30th, 2015. No theme today. I've noticed that there's times when things build up, that there's no way to get to it, and then there's certain times when everything gets a little bit sparse. It's about the holidays, you know, so we're coming up on Easter, so all the heresy is moving in that direction. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up our Bible and compare what people are saying to God's Word in context using sound biblical exegesis. And over and over and over again, we note that what God's Word really says is so much better than what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, prophets nowadays. You know, people running around claiming to be prophets. Uh, you know, and uh, those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex is those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, uh, it's such a mess. Anyway, uh, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We are going to be all over the map. It has been a while since we have done an update on uh, John Crowder. Now, if you're not familiar with John Crowder, he is a gentleman that is all about the drunken glory. Yeah. And I've noticed something about his teaching literally over the past year, year and a half, although I haven't done an update on him in a while. You know, I've kept tabs on him. He has discovered the gospel. And... (laughs) And although that would generally be a good thing, I mean, he reads Luther, he reads Capon, I mean, it it sounds like he's even maybe been exposed to Tully and Chavidian's work, but the problem is he's taken the gospel and mixed it with this drunken glory mysticism stuff, and it is, ugh, just a depressing mix. I mean, I mean, what he does is so blasphemous, so over the top. Um, just a, a, a demonic mocking of God, that I think the fact that he even throws the gospel in there is is kind of Satan's way of just, you know, you know mocking and taunting God. And, and it's just, it's, it's egregious is what it is. And so we will be doing a John Crowder update. And now we put John Crowder now into the general category known as the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. 
And uh, so we have that we will be doing. And then after that, we have a Joel Osteen update. <laughs> It's like, yeah, you may get whiplash listening listening to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I, I'm just saying. But uh, we're going to be uh, listening to Joel Osteen, uh, literally wax word of faith, if you would. And uh, we're going to be listening to a portion of a message entitled, Your Words Become Your Reality. This is one of the clearest examples from Joel Osteen of the word of faith heresy, that, you know, your thoughts, your ideas, you know, your faith creates your future. And, uh, you know, this is more akin to the mind sciences, uh, mind science cults than it is actually to biblical Christianity. We'll take a break, and then when we come back, you know, again, we're, we're steering erratically today. I <laughs> look at this course that I've charted for today's episode of, of Fighting for the Faith, and all I can say is, hang on, hopefully nobody will fall overboard. And then after that, we will come back from the break, and we will do a Patricia King update. Patricia King now is a pastrix, and she has this Shiloh Fellowship thing that she does on Sundays. And we're going to be listening to a recent a portion of a recent message of hers. And what I find fascinating, for all of her claims to receiving prophetic insight, Patricia King still does not know what to do with sin. She does not properly distinguish God's law and gospel, and this uh, segment from her most recent sermon, I think, will help flesh that fact out. And then in (laughs) hour number two, get ready for another hard turn. We're going to head to Helena, Montana to narrate church and listen to a a recent sermon delivered by Adam Hushka of uh, Narrate Church entitled, uh, let me see, entitled uh, Purpose Amnesia. Do you suffer from purpose amnesia? And uh, it's it's one of the things Adam Hushka says in this sermon. I mean, he has more in common with Rob Bell than he does with the Apostle Paul. That's probably the best way that I can put it. So that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I understand we're going to be all over the map. I've got to play our standard warning because... Uh, what we're going to be doing on today's episode, there will there will be some portions of the program that that could cause bodily injury. So let me play the warning, then we'll get into it. And again, no theme, and it's we're erratically all over the place today. My apologies. Normally, I don't steer steer the ship that choppily, but uh, is choppily a word anyway? <laughs> Uh, Here's our warning, and then we'll get to it. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. You have been warned. So, um, are you familiar with John Crowder? It's been a while since we've done a John Crowder update. Uh, This is a guy who goes around the world on what he calls drunken glory tours and things like that. So we're going to be listening to a recent uh, appearance of John Crowder at uh, the church at Parkview. 
And uh, you know, this is where Melissa and Rick Wood hold court. And uh, we'll be listening to a part of his Drunken Glory tour. And uh, we'll, we'll pick up as he finishes praying and then decides to explain to us all about the mystical signs and wonders, the supernatural, the glory, and all this kind of stuff. And see if any of this sounds like biblical Christianity to you. So without any further ado, here's John Crowder. I thank you that supernatural Christianity is normative Christianity. Amen. So here we were, and we were known we were one of the glory guys, you know, the supernatural stream and everything. I mean, the, the word supernatural, it was the buzzword. You know, this is like, you know, around 2005 to whatever. And it was like, that was the buzzword. And every book from the, on the Christian publishers had to have supernatural on the cover. You know, supernatural ways of this, supernatural ways of that, supernatural this, supernatural money, supernatural, you know, whatever, supernatural car repair, supernatural cat neutering, whatever. You know, everything was supernatural. And to be honest with you, it was just like, I, I, and I explain it because and I should be able to because I'm a preacher, but I, like, I just couldn't fit into this like, like mold of like packaging this, this thing. Like it, it's, it's hard to pull off a nice, big, international, polished ministry when it takes eight guys dragging you up to the pulpit because you're so hammered drunk you've got a plumber's crack you can't even hold your own pants up. And he's not talking about drunk on wine. Not drunk in the sense of, you know, inebriated on a, on a, you know, illegal substance. He's talking about being so hammered drunk because of the glory of the Holy Spirit and the anointing. You know, you've, you've heard of the laughing revival. Yeah, it's kind of like that, except for rather than you laughing, you become inebriated on the Holy Spirit. And as much as I, I am appreciative of the miraculous, I mean, how do you say this in a respectful way? But I did, I just, I, I got bored. I mean, because the only thing, I was just obsessed with the presence of Jesus. And sometimes Jesus didn't want to play heal the headache so you'll end up on the next big conference card or whatever. And it was just like, for me, I was just hammered drunk on the wine of his love. And, and, and I just, I couldn't always pull it together. I mean, I had a period of time, 2008, 2009, blackout years for me. Okay, I know I was in public ministry because there's YouTube evidence of it. But like, I, I, just, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't pull it together. Dude, stuff would be happening in our meetings. And I'm telling you, and I, and I, and I mean this and not in an arrogant way at all. You have to understand where I'm coming from. We had so much whack rolling through just our regular, everyday, normal meetings that anybody else with a big, you know, polished thing, they would, they would say, hold the phone, stop the calendar. We're going to have extended meetings. We're going to market this as an outpouring. We're going to call it revival. We're going to buy an e-blast. We just called it life. And it's not because, like, I'm more anointed than anybody. I'm so sick of that mentality. For me, it was just like we were just discovering this is what we all have. This is reality. This is union. Amen? Dude, we were in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. We're doing this big conference in, like, uh, you know, like in a hotel conference center thing. And, dude, bodies just, just splat. People are crawling on hands and knees on all fours through the lobby to get to their car. And in that, in that same hotel... There was another group in another room. They were having a, uh, like a hip-hop club thing they had rented out. And so the, all, people just hear this like boom, 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 boom. And they see these little young white guys crawl into their cars. 
And they're thinking, something's off here. And so they, they call the cops, okay? The cops show up with a canine drug dog unit. The drug dogs are sniffing down our congregants. Amen? Yeah, this sounds like a legitimate move of the Holy Spirit to me. Doesn't it sound like that to you? Like, not at all. Do convinced we were hammered on something. And so this lady from the meeting, she's, she's telling the cop, who was a Baptist cop, but that's fine, I'm Baptist too. I was baptized. We are in a Southern Baptist church here, you know that. I am technically Southern Baptist, okay? When I had my conversion experience in college, you know, I grew up as a Pentecostal, but I was thinking, well, I probably should get baptized again. Where do you get baptized? Baptist church. My paper's floating out there somewhere, amen? Thank God I can't lose my salvation from that one, amen? So anyways, um, where are we at? Um, oh, yeah, so the lady, she like tells the Baptist cop, she says, we're drunk on the Holy Ghost. He's like, I've never heard of that in my life. But that's just the norm. Yeah, because that is not a true manifestation of God, the Holy Spirit. This is demonic mockery of God and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Like, I can't even remember, like, every day it's something weird. I, I just, these are just things that are just popping in my head. Like, we were in um, Adelaide, Australia one time, and a big conference center, bodies everywhere, you know, just ah, going nuts. And this lady at the front desk, she's trying to figure out what's going on. And she's got no, she's not being critical. She's not, like, being mean or anything. She's just asking an honest question. She says, are you guys a Tourette Syndrome organization? <laughs> She's just trying to process it. We did a mission trip to the Ukraine, and we're like dragging our team members that are just hammered, tranced out, can't move a muscle, right? And, uh, and we're trying to get them in these like taxis, and the taxi drivers would not even take us anywhere unless we, uh, unless we uh, agreed to pay vomit insurance. They were convinced we were hammered on vodka. They will know we are Christians by our stoned out trances in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's what scripture says. Why does anyone think that this is actual biblical Christianity? Why would anyone go to a church and think, yeah, this is a legitimate move of the Holy Trinity? <laughs> this is just life. And, and you know, and, and this was a season that I, I just really started, you know, digging in. I'd always loved the mystics, but I started reading, you know, realizing there's all of this, you know, mystical theology throughout church history. Uh, of, there's always been ecstatics and seers and forward and people who were experiencing that, that realm of bliss. They were experiencing that realm of ecstasy. You know, whether you call it, there were so many words for it. We call it trance. You know, if you're in the, whatever stream you're in, if you're a Catholic, you call it contemplation. If you're from Toronto, you call it soaking. You know, if you're Pentecostal, slain in the spirit, filled with the spirit, baptized in the spirit, rapture, rapture's not getting sucked out of your pants and leaving your car unmanned on the highway at the end of the world. That's bad Christian b movie theology rapture always had to do this pleasurable out-of-body type of experience and it's not just this thing that you go in and out of it's more of an awakening to something that we're already in you see 
And so um, we realized, and, and there were these mystical theologians. Now, maybe they use different terminology than we do. We realized drinking didn't just start in Toronto, okay? Drinking didn't just start at Azusa Street. I mean, the church started in the drunken glory at Pentecost. Yeah, no, actually, it didn't. For him to say, yeah, the church started in the drunken glory at Pentecost is an absolute twisting of God's word. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 2, by the way. Um, we, I recently read this passage on the air, but uh, it's the day of Pentecost, and uh, the Holy Spirit comes down. By the way, uh, several listeners pointed this out, kind of a little tangent here, is that when uh, T.D. Jakes, you know, in the segment we did last week on, you know, entitled Sit on Me, Jesus, when he said that on the day of Pentecost, Jesus sat on the apostles or sat on the disciples in the upper room, that what he was saying is is that Jesus is the Holy Spirit, which means that T.D. Jakes is still a modalist. And I thought that was a legitimate point. Several people pointed that out, but that's a, that's a bunny trail at this point. Let's come back here. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, here it's, it, it says, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. So the claim by John Crowder is that the church began on the day of Pentecost in the drunken glory. No, it did not. Here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all in, all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and said, Are not all of those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexing to one another. What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea. And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So the explanation given by the bystanders was, well, the reason why these Galileans are speaking at languages that they don't know and proclaiming the wonders of God is because they were drunk. Peter says, au contraire, no, we are not drunk, as you suppose, this is what was promised from the Holy, you know, in the uh, by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Joel, and this is the fulfillment of it. And then he goes on to preach law and gospel, and Christ to him crucified for our sins, and calls him to repent. So, um, yeah, for John Crowder to say that, yeah, this drunken glory stuff that he's talking about, oh yeah, this is this is what the church was born in. This is not the Holy Spirit at all. Strange fire are two words that come to mind, but we'll listen a little bit more. And he saved the best wine for last. He doesn't give us a season of renewal and then rip the rug out from under us and give us a season of depression. Okay, that's not how it works. We're going from glory to glory, amen? Put your hand on your neighbor's head. Say, today is the drunkest day of your life. 
Wow. Yeah, I mean, seriously. I mean, if this were, if, if I were at a church, I mean, if I were a layperson and I went to church and this is what was happening at my church, I would never go there again. I would flee the building for fear that it was going to collapse. Whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether you even believe it or not, belief is not the magic formula that makes it happen. The facts are the facts, whether you believe it or not. Gold does not become gold when you discover it. We are waking up and smelling the shing ding ding in our cup. We are waking up to the reality right now. You are in the house of wine. Amen. I mean, utterly crazy. I think you've had enough of that. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, John Crowder continues to grow in popularity and is, you know, speaking at you know, bigger venues. He has a big Drunken Glory school academy thing that he does during the summer. And that a church that claims allegiance to Jesus Christ would give its pulpit and it and expose its flock to this is, wow, it's just absolutely criminal and it's self-refuting at that and yeah this is a strong delusion sent by god because these people clearly don't love the truth that's the best way i can put it a little bit of second thessalonians there moving along time for a joel osteen update when i'm feeling lonely sad as i can be all by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea what makes me happy Fills me up with glee Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw My shiny teeth and me My shiny teeth that twinkle Just like the stars in space My shiny teeth that sparkle And beauty to my face My shiny teeth that glisten Just like the Christmas tree You know they walk a mile Just to see me smile Shiny teeth and me. All right, that's uh, Chip Skylark and Shiny Teeth and Me. Now, what we're going to be listening to is a portion of a recent message delivered by Joel Osteen entitled, Your Words Become Your Reality. Your Words Become Your Reality. And the best way to describe this is this is the word of faith heresy on parade and being taught by... Well, none other than Joel Osteen, which means that uh, that makes him a word of faith heretic, which is what we've been saying for years here at Fighting for the Faith. But I always enjoy it in a kind of bad way when he actually comes right out and explains his theology in no uncertain terms. And that's what he's going to be doing in this message. So without any further ado, here's Joel Osteen and your words become your reality. Discover the sinner in you. Well, God bless you. Always a joy to come into your homes. And if you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you again for coming out. I like to start with something funny. I heard about this man that was walking on the beach. God said, son, you've been so faithful I'm going to grant you one special wish. He was so excited. He said, God, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but I'm afraid to fly. So my wish is that you would build me a bridge across the ocean. God said, son, that's totally impossible. Think of the logistics of that. 
Now take some time and wish again. He said, okay, God, I've been married four times. All my ex-wives say I am so insensitive. So my wish is that I would be able to understand a woman. I want to know why they think like they think, why they feel like they feel. There was a long pause. God said, do you want two lanes or four lanes on that bridge? (laughs) Hold up your Bible. Say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. No, you won't. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about how your words become your reality. Uh Uh-huh. You are where you are today in part because of what you've been saying about yourself. Uh, You know, I... (laughs) I actually don't talk about myself in in the way he's describing here. I I don't sit there and ever say, "Oh, you know, I'm just not good enough." And no, and nor do I sit there in the mirror and go, "Oh, you are the bee's knees." You know, I I don't <laughs> I don't engage in this negative self talk, and I don't engage in the positive self talk. I don't find talking about myself in these terms to be anything that I'm even prone to. I don't understand how this message resonates with so many people. We continue. Words are like seeds. When you speak something out, you give life to what you're saying. If you continue to say it, eventually that can become a reality. Whether you realize it or not, you are prophesying your future. And no biblical text says this, not one. And this is great when we're saying things like, I'm blessed, I'm strong, I will accomplish my dreams, I'm coming out of debt. Yeah, apparently when you talk like that, you're prophesying your future. Which is why affirmations are such a big part of Joel Osteen's theology. That's not just being positive, you are prophesying victory. Uh Again, biblical text that says this, I'd like to see that text please, Joel. Prophesying success, prophesying new levels. Your life will move in the direction of your words. But too many people go around prophesying just the opposite. I never get any good breaks. I'll never get back in shape. Business is slow. I'll probably get laid off. Flu season is here. I always get it. They don't realize they are prophesying defeat. (laughs) Oh, man. This is the tyranny of the positive affirmation. Yeah. Whatever you do, don't say anything negative. Don't say anything that could be d- interpreted as nary. Don't what if you wake up in the morning and it looks like it's going to rain. Whatever you do, don't say, "Boy, it looks drizzly dreary out there. It looks like it's about to rain." Cuz then you do that, you know, you're going to cause it to rain on all of us. And you know, we all want sunny days. Yeah, maybe that's the reason why it's so cold in North Dakota during the winter because you got all these Norwegians running around going, oh, it looks like it's going to be a really harsh winter this year. You know, it's going to be really cold. And then blammo, they prophesied. And now, you know, we got, you know, all this, you know, 30, 40 below stuff going on. See, you know, if, if they would just keep their trap shut, we can finally start growing some palm trees here in North Dakota, you know? It's just like they're calling in bad breaks, mediocrity, lack. The scripture says we will eat the fruit of our words. 
yeah, and the what do, the question is, what does that mean? If it's, Scripture says we will eat the fruit of our words, in what context is it talking about that? Is it saying that we magically create reality? Go and look at the context. That passage doesn't say that. You are planting seeds when you talk. At some point, you're going to eat that fruit. My challenge is make sure you're planting the right kind of seeds. Yeah, you know, only the positive hybrid, you know, you know, super, you know, genetically engineered stuff to create the best, most compelling, imaginative, you know, an imaginative future that you can possibly imagine. You know, if you want apples, you have to sow apple seeds. If- <sighs> what is it with all these guys in sowing and reaping? So sowing and reaping is not just well. You know, because, you know, according to John Hagee, you know, everything produces after its kind, you know, and, and other you know, televangelists say everything produces after its kind. Therefore, you know, you plant an apple seed, it'll grit an apple. You plant money, you sow a seed of money, and then it'll reap a harvest of money in your life. And now Joel Osteen's saying, yeah, you know, your words are like seeds. And so you want a great future. You have to sow great future seeds. And those are based on the words that you say. If you want oranges, you can't plant cactus seeds, poison ivy seeds, mushroom seeds. You're going to reap fruit from the exact seeds that you've been sowing. Yeah, again, this sounds so reasonable. I mean, it has a logical consistency to it that is, well, just amazing. But the problem is you cannot find a biblical passage that clearly says this. In other words, you can't talk negative and expect to live a positive life. You can't talk defeat and expect to have victory. You can't talk lack, not enough, can't afford it, never get ahead, and expect to have abundance. If you have a poor mouth, you're going to have a poor life. If you don't like what you're seeing, start sowing some different seeds. Instead of saying, I'll never get well, Joel, this sickness has been in my family for three generations. No, let me give you the right seeds. God is restoring health back unto me. Yeah, and then when, you know, that the third generation, you know, congenital disease shows up in your life and and you know, and it doesn't go away, you've been perfectly inoculated against Christianity, not because you've actually been exposed to biblical Christianity, but you've been exposed to a cheap knockoff of it, and as a result of it, you know, <clears throat> yeah, this will this will totally knock you out of the game. And it's always so sad. You know, the, I know stories from people who are listeners as well as people in my own family who, you know, they've come down with a, a, a disease and they can't speak the truth about it. Oh, I got to stay positive. Yeah, you know, I, I know I have cancer and it's terminal and I, it, you know. Uh, I, I, you know, I understand that, but I, I can't say anything negative. I, I got to believe and think positive thoughts if I'm going to lick this thing. Yeah, and then they end up dying from it. <clears throat> this is making promises for God that God never made. This is a theology that is not based on Scripture. You'll notice that Joel Osteen is not actually exegeting a biblical text to give us this teaching. Nope, he's just putting forward something that sounds reasonable based upon a dubious passage that he ripped from context. And I should note this on the television broadcast, that thing about we will eat the you know the fruit of our words. They never even put a scripture reference up. Uh huh. This sickness didn't come to stay; it came to pass. I'm getting better and better every day. You keep sowing those seeds, and eventually you'll eat that fruit. Health, 
wholeness, victory. Instead of saying, I'll never get out of debt. I'll never rise any higher. No, I will lend and not borrow. Whatever I touch prospers and succeeds. I'm coming into overflow, into more than enough. Start sowing seeds of increase, seeds of abundance. No more, I'll never accomplish my dreams. No, I have the favor of God. Blessings are chasing me down. The right people are searching me out. New opportunities, new levels are in my future. If you keep talking like that, you'll reap a harvest of good things. Mm, Yeah, so apparently God's just up in heaven waiting for you to speak positive things over your life so that you can prophesy abundance and prosperity and health over yourself. And then, you know, then God will uh, bless that. Yeah, this is not what the Bible teaches at all. Man, so there it is. Joel Osteen's, you know, this was from a couple weeks ago. You know, this message, you know, clear word of faith heresy. God's word does not teach this. And it puts people under the tyranny of the so-called positive and makes God make me make promises that he never actually made. Dangerous, dangerous stuff indeed. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, Patricia King preaching. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Bird Cage Theater presents. Church Day Select. And uh, greetings to the Wallace Tapley Show. I'm your host, Wallace Tapley, and my official title is the only mostly accurate prophet of the end times. Uh, some of my competitors call me the second in two tens weasel of the apocalypse, but I do my best to ignore their comments of hate and derision. I, I do have an update this week. Ah, uh, yes, uh, my direct revelations from God this week have told me something very, very special. It should be coming in right about now. This is a goodie. It reads, This blessing is for a certain person who is currently living in Italy and is the owner of a bistro. It says that you'll be receiving one million euros. Uh, Make that 500,000. 10,000. 
five. Oh, um, yes, you're receiving five euros today. Heaven be praised. Oh, it seems that I'm getting another download. I do believe that it's the result of next year's Super Bowl. Uh, this could turn out to be very profitable indeed. It says the winner of the next year's Super Bowl will be the Chicago Cubs. No, wait, that's not right. I, I mean the L.A. Lakers. No, that's not right either. I, I, I do apologize, folks. My computer suffers from Plato's tenfold error syndrome from time to time. Oh, here we go. It says handshake error. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. See you next time on the Wallace Tapley Show. Goodbye! Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, uh, believing Joel Osteen's theology, which is not actually biblical, endangers your eternal soul. No joke. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it. To the work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, that's a great way to support us. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Patricia King update. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. When I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. 
I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts Every ball you throw will make me rich There stands me wife The idol of me life Sing and roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch Sing and roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch Sing and roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch Roll a bowl a ball Roll a bowl a ball Sing and roll a bowl a ball a penny a pitch that's right. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. <laughs> yeah. And that's, uh, I think, a, a good description of what it sounds like uh, you know, when Patricia King is preaching. So uh, so apparently, Patricia King, we've noted this before, uh, she's got this Shiloh Church Fellowship thingy that she does online, and she preaches. She is the pastrix of this Shiloh Fellowship with XP Media out there in Maricopa, Arizona, and uh, we're going to be listening to her most recent message. And this, you know, will demonstrate just the fact that she is not capable of rightly dividing God's word, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And apparently the direct revelations she gets from God, the Holy Spirit, don't help her. <laughs> Even the Holy Spirit gives her bad biblical advice. Yeah, here we go. All right. Well, the message I want to share with you this morning is part two of Diffuse the Fuse. So if you weren't here last week, Diffuse the Fuse, um, I shared on this subject, so I'll intro it a little. But before I get into the actual word, I want to say this. Whenever you hear a word from God, it could be in your devotion time or it could be from a preacher's message or, you know, something that is being highlighted to you by a friend or something. Whenever you hear something. The now, she's talking about direct revelation of God that is delivered to your heart. You have either been tested on it already or you're in the midst of a test or you're going to be tested on it, okay? It's either one. Yeah, and which biblical text says this? Where did she get this theology from? Probably the same place that Joel Osteen got his word of faith theology from, like his own little mind. This is not from God's word. And sometimes all of the above. Would you say an amen to that? And tests are good. Say that with me. Tests are good. They are really good. Turn to your neighbor and say, I love a good test. <laughs> because Yeah, I don't. I never liked tests. You don't have a test. You won't know what you know. I was having a talk with my grandson, you know, a few months back. He was really upset because he could not see the benefit of tests in school. Why do we have to do these tests? Why do we have to study for tests? I don't see the purpose of them. I don't even want them, you know. And um, I said, well, tests are really important to you, dear, because you'll find out what you know. If you are, go, go through a test, you'll find out what you know, but you'll also find out what you don't know yet. So if you don't know it, then you know that you can learn it. He said, well, I don't want to learn it. And I said, well, you, you know, you're just going to have to. You know, then came the next question. Why do I even have to be in school? I said, it's good for your brain, okay? It's good brain exercise. All right. So Sounds like a fine young lad. Anyways, in the kingdom... We're in school, the school of the Holy Spirit, amen? And so we have an opportunity in the Lord to be tested on what we know, to be tested on what is, is realized. When gold is tested in the natural, it goes through fire, doesn't it? And it is purified through the testing of the gold. That's what purifies it. And so as a people, we want to be purified. We want to be strong. We want to be, um, you know, enabled to walk in the fullness of all that God has for us. So tests are important. So when you hear a word, 
know that you've either been tested, are being tested, or will be tested. Okay? Yeah, you, you said that twice now, but you haven't actually shown me where God's Word teaches this. So last week, I shared a message called Diffuse the Fuse. And basically, it was about how to deal um, with impatience, irritability, anger, and how to diffuse all that so that we can be free, okay? And it was based on love is not irritable, love does not take offense. 1 Corinthians 13 is not provoked and that's because as a people individuals and as a congregation our goal in life is to learn to love it says in first corinthians 14 1 you know let love be your greatest aim because when you learn to love everything else inside of love is fulfilled that's why jesus said you only need in the new testament there's not a whole bunch of commandments there's just one commandment and it is love love god and love everyone else and uh, yeah that's the that's actually the summation of the law the uh, all of the law and the prophets are summarized in those two commands love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself that's not the gospel that's the law Side of that, you got everything, okay? Because all the law and all the prophets is fulfilled in those two commandments. So for us as a body, that's really important that we learn to love. But yeah, it's really important because those are commandments. And uh, how how you doing on that? If you know that we don't always pass our love tests, okay? And that's okay because the good thing about the kingdom, there's no failure or there's no need for failure. You just keep taking the test until you pass it. Oh, <laughs> no, actually, that's not what the gospel teaches. Yeah, oh, listen, in the kingdom, you, know, you just keep taking the test until you pass it. Wrong. You know, it, listen, if, if your salvation depends upon you passing this test, you know, f- so that you can finally say, hey, I, I now how, know how to do it. I can love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself perfectly. You know, it took only 9 million tries on the test, but finally I passed the test. Yeah, if that's the way you're saved, then, well, you're, you'll never make it because you don't pass the test even one day. But Christ passed the test perfectly for you. The good news is that Christ is your righteousness, uh-huh, and you are declared righteous by faith, through faith in him. So notice what Patricia King's doing. She does not know the biblical distinction between law and gospel. And yet it's so clearly taught in the New Testament. Don't you think if God the Holy Spirit is constantly giving direct revelation to Patricia King that he'd kind of like say, Hey, uh, um, Patricia, this is the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, um, I, you know, when I inspired the apostles to write the New Testament, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working with them on this whole idea of, you know, like, the law and its proper function and the gospel and 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 uh you don't really seem to get that so let me explain that to you so you don't mislead people but he doesn't you know we continue so with Stephen, one of our media team this week and we were having lunch i think it was and and uh, he was saying yeah i was homeschooled and the beautiful thing about homeschooling with my mom is he said um i never did fail a test we just had to keep taking them until we pass and his pass was an a i think he said it was like over 90 percent or something and i thought whoa <laughs> no wonder you're so smart okay 
So we want to raise the bar, and we talked about this last week, raise the bar in our lives and as a ministry, raise the bar so that there's no toleration for irritability, outbursts, uh, things that would violate love. And of course, we're not perfect in that yet, but we're working towards it. And it was a great sermon. When will you be perfect? I'd like to know. If you haven't heard it yet, it's on demand on XP, uh, Shiloh.com. You, you can watch it. It had some really good um, uh, points in it. Um, we use a customer service model that when when irritation uh, comes to you, you first of all empathize. You look at another person's perspective, not just your own. Then you apologize. See, all you had to do was apply the principles of good customer service, and then you won't sin through irritability anymore. Who knew, you know? As you humble yourself if needed, you make the wrongs right, then you repair, make the situation better if you can. And the fourth point was to escalate or to build relationship or to put healthy boundaries in, okay? So that was last week. I love that message. I preached to myself last week and I, I really fortified myself really good for a day or two. And then I got tested on the very word that I preached and I flunk the test at that time okay okay well if you flunk the test and that means you sinned what is the biblical solution for our sin is it try harder pull yourself up by your bootstraps resolve to never do that again what is the biblical solution for our sin answer it is a crucified and risen savior we are to confess our sin repent be forgiven that's how sin is conquered in our life is through the cross, through the forgiveness of those sins, and then bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But notice what she's describing is not that. It's something very different. But um, in, in God, we don't have to say, okay, I'm a failure or, or, you know, I just failed that test. I can just say just temporarily it hasn't come into its full win yet, okay? <laughs> She is so deceiving herself, which, by the way, is what First John chapter 1, what 8, 9, and 10 says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What she just said is the exact opposite of what Scripture says. And, you know, we're, those of us in God, we don't have to say that we failed. We just say that we haven't come into the fullness of, you know, of <laughs> receiving it yet. Whatever. That is, <laughs> she doesn't know what to do with her sin. And, of course, she claims direct revelation from God. Why isn't God the Holy Spirit correcting her now? So what happened for me, I'll just be you know, give you the scenario. What happened for me is that my schedule was maxed out. There's too much on my schedule right now. And I got to do something about that. But I had all these things I had to do and it was all in my head. And I had to do lists that were a mile long and I was trying to get it all done. And I was time pressured and everything. So what I did is I gave instruction for uh, someone to take care of one situation for me uh, so that it could be finished. So I gave them very clear instruction and everything, and I gave it to them. I thought, oh, good, that's one more thing out of the way. Then I went into something else, and I was working. My head was all full, and I was really focused. And I get a phone call from the person that I received, gave the instruction to, and they say, okay, what about this, what about that? And I said, well, it's in the instruction sheet. Yeah, but what do you mean about this? And what? Okay, so I had to lose my focus, go to them, and fix it. Okay, 10 minutes later. 
later, I get another phone call, same person, and say, well, you know, what about this? What about that? You know, I thought, okay, well, I told it in the instruction, and I also just talked to you a few minutes ago. So got that sorted out. Then the person comes to where I'm having the other meeting, stands there, and asks me some more questions. Well, by this time, I'm, I'm getting irritated, okay? So I'm impatient now. And my impatience started to manifest, but I didn't clue in. You know, you feel justified sometimes if, you know, I just have a right to be flustered, you know, because after all, I already talked to you twice on the phone and now you're here in person and you're disturbing my meeting and I have a right to be flustered. The thing is, in love, you never have a right. You can never self-justify, you know, but we do all the time. I did, okay? I'll just, you know, I always like being honest because then, uh, you know, everyone knows. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So she's confessing her sin, her shortcoming at this point. Will she preach Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution? The blood of Christ, confess it as the sin, and and basically say, but I'm in Christ, and Christ bled and died for these sins. That's kind of the question I want to know. So then, um, then after that, I received yet another phone call. And I'm thinking to myself, self, You could have done this yourself easier and faster. So not only now did it put extra pressure on you, you are disrupting your focus flow and you're not even able to concentrate on what you have to do right now. And then I got more irritable. And then I go out to the car and I realize I failed the test. I had this perfect test. It was a perfect setup for me to practice love. It was a perfect setup. And it was instead you sinned miserably and fell short. Okay. Just little tiny things that irritated me. And I just preached myself happy on Sunday, and this was within forty eight hours. Yeah, you see, there's kind of the issue is that you're not supposed to be preaching. Yeah, that's right. That I am failing what I already preached on. You see, when a preacher preaches a word, it doesn't mean that they're obeying the word. That word's for them just as much as anyone else. It's just that God revealed the word to them, okay? And they are the mouthpiece to give the word, but they got to listen to what they're preaching to, okay? So when you go and preach and when you give instruction to people, realize that you have to listen to that too. So be easy on preachers, you know, because if you judge them, you have to judge yourself too for the many times that you gave instruction. and well, then just- See, that's the thing. If you properly distinguish between law and gospel, then you can judge without it being judgmental because you're not saying you're better. You're saying I'm just as sinful. The same standard that accuses you and condemns you and shows you to be a sinner is the same standard that accuses me and shows me to be a sinner. I'm not, I don't have a right standing before God because I've passed a test. I have a right standing before God because Christ's perfect righteousness has been given to me by grace through faith. See the difference? There's no room for boasting when you're saved by grace through faith as a gift. Okay. So anyways, I I get home and then the next thing happens. How many of you, when you blow it, go into self-condemnation? And you beat yourself up. Okay, so that's the next thing that happened. Now I'm tempted with something else. Self-hate, okay? So I'm still out of love. I'm not in love. Oh, your love, your your aim in life is to learn to love. So she's just sinning and failing miserably, which is what sinners do. What's the solution? Is it the cross? And, and you didn't love at all. You didn't love at all. You were irritable. Love is not irritable. Love is not impatient. And you were all of the above. And so then... 
I started thinking thoughts of, oh, you're no good, and, you know, you know, you're supposed to be learning to love, and you, you can't even love, you know. And so I actually entertained those thoughts. And what are we supposed to do? I preached last week. We cast them down. But uh, I, you, know, you cast them down last week. Oh, I see. We'll see. Clearly, you, that casting down ceremony that you performed last week just didn't work. Where in Scripture are we told to cast these things down? Why don't we instead proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins? Repent and believe and trust in him for all of our shortcomings, all of our sins. Why is the cross not front and center here? Cast them down. So then I thought, oh my goodness, I just preached on that and I didn't cast them down. Now I'm a bigger failure. You see the cycle? <laughs> uh, and Joel Osteen would have some words to say with you, you know, Patricia. Now, look, at you're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy here in Joel Osteen's theological world, not the biblical world. But, yeah, yeah, you get the point. So that was my situation. And so I went before the Lord and I said, oh, Lord, what do I do? Help me. You know, this great sinner that I am, is there an answer for me? Help me. The answer is yes, there is an answer for you. It's Christ and him crucified for your sins. Repent. Confess your sins. Be forgiven. That's the answer. They, that, it's the same answer for you as it is for me. So, so now we've got her praying, Oh God, what, is there an answer for me? I'm a sinner. And does God the Holy Spirit speak the comforting words of Christ and him crucified for her sins? Listen to what she claims the Holy Spirit spoke to her. Why did I blow it? My 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 spirit is so willing, but why is my flesh so weak? Yeah, because you have a sinful flesh. That's the reason. Have you read Romans seven? Me a key. I know the I know the principles, but how did I walk out of it? And he says, simple. Okay, now so she's describing her Romans seven moment. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Is there a solution for me? What are the keys? Well, what does the Apostle Paul say is the key to all of that? Because after his lament in Romans chapter 7, that he does the things he doesn't want to do and he doesn't do the things he wants to do, here's the key. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, Patricia's all about the Spirit, and she claims the Holy Spirit's speaking to her, and the Holy Spirit's now going to give her the key. And is the Holy Spirit going to say what Romans 8 says? Because that's exactly what the Holy Spirit has, speak, has, speaking, has spoken in the past through the Apostle Paul. All Scripture is God-breathed. Is God the Holy Spirit going to say, Patricia, I've already given you the key. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's see what the Holy Spirit supposedly told Patricia King. It's simple. He said, my peace is available to you all the time, but you just didn't receive it. It's hovering around you all the time, but you just didn't receive it. That's all. If you had received my peace, then 
you would have been able to love because my peace is inside of me and I am love and my peace I give to you. Thought, Okay, teach me about peace then. I need more teaching about peace. So uh-huh. So you'll notice that uh, her, her Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit she is tapping into and is speaking to her is clearly clueless about the gospel and the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which definitively, and I mean this, definitively proves that the Holy Spirit that Patricia King is speaking to is not the true Holy Spirit. It is a false Holy Spirit, a counterfeit Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit that is preaching and teaching a different gospel, a Holy Spirit that isn't pointing people to Christ and Him crucified, calling people to repent and to be forgiven, convicting the sin, the people, the people of sin and unbelief. No, this is this is a different this is a different Holy Spirit altogether, and that Holy Spirit. It ain't preaching the gospel and Christ crucified for our sins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say the spirit that is speaking to her definitively, 100% no doubt whatsoever, is demonic. What do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to head down to Helena, Montana and listen to an Adam Hushka sermon about purpose amnesia. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Do you suffer from purpose amnesia? Maybe that's the reason why 
you know, you you sin is because you suffer from purpose amnesia. At least that's what I think Adam Hushka is saying in this sermon that we're about to listen to. But uh, let's do this right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon i don't know what this is comes to us via narrate church in helena montana adam hushka presiding he's supposedly preaching through first samuel and uh, the name of his sermon is entitled purpose amnesia (laughs) so why is it that that people do bad things why is it the people in power abuse other people and maybe even sexually abuse, you know, women and things like that? Is it because they're suffering from purpose amnesia? <laughs> maybe that's the problem. I mean, I don't know what to call this. So as we're going to listen to um, Adam Hushka muse, is that the right way, his way through uh, a portion of First uh, Samuel here? So let me back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is Adam Hushka and Purpose Amnesia. Really, last week what we did is we asked one question, and it was a question that I suppose is fraught with all kinds of difficulty, but if we can just kind of work through that a little bit, the, the question that we asked last week was, what if there's, what if there's purpose to your pain? And yeah, that, that can sound trite and simplistic, and it even tends towards spiritualizing things. And that's not our goal at all. But really what we were saying is, is, is what if by delving into your pain, you can find your purpose? You know, the reality is we live in a culture that, that loves to talk about purpose, and rightly so. Psychology and the text. What if delving into my pain will cause me to find my purpose? Okay. Be uh, very, very miserable at the very least. And so many of us, maybe for you, probably all of us have read a book or been to a conference or heard some kind of rousing talk where the idea was like, if you could do anything, what would you do if failure was no option? Like, what what would you do if, if, if money was no issue? Like, what would you do? And in those moments, sometimes in middle school, sometimes in high school, sometimes in college, sometimes much later in life, we, we have this moment and we hear those invitations and it's the motivation, it's the kick that we need to step out into the world and take risk and seize our divine moment and make sure that we live a life that matters seize our divine moment and live a life that matters well what happens to those christians who never attended a conference like that and never had the opportunity to seize their divine moments and they their life is one of those lives that nobody by the world's standards would say was a life that mattered you maybe they would just you know a stay-at-home mom you know like like that's anything big. Yeah, I'm not talking what my values are. I'm talking by the world's values. I mean, right? Or somebody who uh, works for, uh, you know, one of those waste management companies and goes, you know, literally drives a truck and picks up trash every day. Do they have a life that matters? Do they find their purpose? Yeah. See, there's a problem here when purpose is being put forward in such a way that it causes you to to despise godly you know, vocations that serve your neighbor. 
We continue. We have this moment and we hear those invitations and it's the motivation, it's the kick that we need to step out into the world and take risk and seize our divine moment and make sure that we live a life that matters. And those are very, very important times. Some of you are probably weeks or months or years into such a moment. But what we said last week is that sometimes, much like our culture struggles to place pain and suffering, sometimes what happens is uh, the bottom falls out of life. I mean, sometimes uh, you dreaming a dream involves like wishing you didn't have cancer. Sometimes, some, sometimes you get the diagnosis. Sometimes the marriage fails. Sometimes you take all the risk in business and it doesn't work. Sometimes you move to a place and it proves to be a disaster. Like sometimes you step out, out there and what happens is the bottom falls out and suddenly you realize that you're just racked with pain. You look in the mirror and you see a person with an addiction. And I think what we have a hard time placing in our culture, I know I do personally, is going, okay, so what do we do with this? And really what we did last week is used Hannah, who is Samuel's mom, used her story to, to step out into this conversation of, wait a minute, well, what if sometimes you find your purpose not through those kind of motivational moments, though they have their place, sometimes you find your purpose because of the pain. Really, we ended last week by saying, what, what if we need you to step into it? To- what if, what if, what if, what if? What a weird way to w- read the story of Hannah from the book of 1 Samuel. What if, what if you find your purpose in your pain? What if, what if, what if? You know, it's as if the guy is incapable of actually making a propositional statement. Everything has to be, you know, kind of in this conversational, somewhat postmodern, in a way that doesn't, you know, want to, you know, make assertions kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? It's the weirdest thing ever. Let's continue. To pay attention to it, to get well. What if we need to stop pushing, we need to push away the Christianese and the fake smiles and that everything's beautiful and everything's perfect and that terrible song from the Lego movie? And what if we sometimes we just need to... Everything is awesome! To recognize like pain has a role and we're going to embrace that. So that was last week and where we started last week and really where we ended last week. This morning, I want to ask what what I think, especially if you're cynical like me, and I know lots of you are much more cynical than I am, and even much, much, much more intelligent. And so I think uh, there's there's the next question, and the next question is actually the more troublesome question, and it's where we're going to get to this morning. But before we do, I, I just want to take a moment to go like, hey, I couldn't mean more sincerely that the goal on Sunday is to start conversations, not finish them. Mm hmm. I thought the goal on Sundays given by Scripture, you know, that would mean it comes from God, not from me, is that the pastor is to preach the word. So Adam Hushka here, I want to make this very clear. Our goal on Sunday is to start a conversation, you know, not, not, to, not to end one, you know. What does that even mean? Your job is to preach the word. What is this nonsense? I can't think of a subject where I deserve to get the last word on the subject just not the intention of this place. Uh, the intention of this place is to, is to kick into gear conversations between you and your spouse and you and your friends and you and God, however you understand him at this point in your journey. It's to kick into conversations. However you understand God at this point in your journey. Wow. So he's not teaching Christian doctrine where you begin to do the work of this stuff. And this morning's question, I think this is more true of that than any question we've asked in a while. Actually, to that end, uh, we're getting better about resourcing that so it's not just an idea, but we can help those conversations happen. So some of you discovered this last, I think it was late August, we started putting on the heat registers these mind map things, we call them. 
for years we've been trying to figure out notes pages and people, some of you have been like, hey, could we get a notes page? And I just went like, I don't know what a note, I don't, this never really fit our culture. And there's that game you play, like you fill in the blank and it's kind of like Jeopardy. Like everyone's not really listening to the sermon. They're just trying to figure out like what word's going to go in that blank. And that never really felt like all that helpful. And so I, I had a, my friend Jim said to me one time, like, Adam, just, just give us your mind map. And I was like, Psh. I had this moment because in my office, I got these giant whiteboards and I, I, I mind map my sermons. And so that's what we started doing. And some of you, uh, you've been using those. We, we can see that. And that's flattering. If, well, apparently he mind maps his sermons, which doesn't speak well about how well organized his mind is. This week, what we've added are, in this case, this week, it's six days worth of readings. Not, not, not big chunks of scripture, but the design is to help you take the conversation further in the scriptures. Because some of you would love to, to read from the scriptures and you're like, I don't even know where I would start. I mean, this is a big book. And so some of you, or maybe some of you, the opposite's true. And you're so familiar that when you open the Bible, you don't even read words. You just see underlines and highlights and things that you've done for the last 30 years. And so what we've done is we put on the back of those just, just readings that are designed kind of to push you into similar directions as this morning's content. And hopefully that'll create some good, we call it chair time, but just some time in your day to start in the morning by reflecting for 15 minutes and reading. So that's there. The other thing that's there are some questions on the back. And that's not because, uh, well, first of all, I don't think they're very good questions. They're just questions. And the design of those is, is all of the things I already said between you and God, but, but also to create conversation between you and your spouse or you and your kids or as a family, or maybe there's someone that you informally grab coffee or lunch or a beer with every once in a while, and you could use them in that context. Maybe you're someone there, like, there's these few couples and you'd love to do small groups, but you do this like, Adam hates small groups. We can't do small groups. He'll ban us from narrate. Can, can I just set the record straight, straight? Like, I'm not anti-small groups. We're not anti-small groups. I'm anti-organizing your small groups for you because that, to me, feels like arranged marriage. And that doesn't typically go all that well. Like, to me, to take a bunch of couples who have good intentions and don't know each other and go, here, be pen pals. It just gets creepy. And then you don't like each other. And then you don't know if you're even a Christian anymore. And so I'm just saying, like, come... <laughs> Come serve with us, fill Easter eggs, like play on the band, be a part of the ushering team, all those things, meet people, and then take those questions. So there we go. Could I get off that soapbox? Just repeat after me. Adam's not anti-small groups. No, you don't have to do that. So there's that resource. And all that is to get at this question, because I think this question and even my suggestions at answers are uh, full of difficulties and contradictions. And so here we go. Here's what I think we have to dive into, though. Simply this, once found... Why is purpose so easily lost? Ever thought of that? Like, go. <laughs> okay, so we're dealing with the you know kind of the finer nuances of this whole purpose-driven theology, you know. So first, you've got to you know you got to do whatever is necessary to find your God-given purpose, and and once you find it, well, you, that's supposed to solve all your problems because then you know wh- why you're here, so you have you know a a, a divine mission to fulfill. But, well, you, but then what happens if after you've discovered your purpose, you, like, forget it and you start behaving inappropriately, you know, uh, according to the purpose that God would have you do? Yeah, so we're wrestling with, in reality, um, why is it that Christians sin? That's really the question. Going to the conference or going to the convention or laying out your business plan, like every company has a mission statement and it's in a drawer somewhere, on a plaque somewhere. Like we have the boss comes back from the conference. He's like, hey, here's our purpose. And you go, whatever, we'll do the same thing a week from now that we've always done. Like finding purpose, that's the easy part, right? 
going to the therapist and beginning to understand like, oh man, here's why I have all this pain and I can use this pain and I can serve young girls with my pain. And then suddenly, but suddenly life happens. And you got a kid with dirty diapers and a meal that, that needs to be cooked and all kinds of things. And do you ever just notice like finding it easy, living it, that's where the work starts. You know, I was talking to my, my friend Jack uh, this week we had lunch, and some of you remember a couple weeks ago we showed a video of Jack. Jack's a professor at Carroll who uh, takes students all over the world and serves people, and we love Jack because he goes all over the world and we stay here and pray. <laughs> at least that's what I like. Um, Jack, he's salt of the earth, one of the greatest people I've ever known. And I was talking to him this week about his trip to Haiti. Uh, he, he was telling me they, they landed in Port-au-Prince. Uh, they had 100 miles to drive from Port-au-Prince. Haiti, by the way, is uh, statistically the second poorest country on the planet. Uh, they had 100 miles to drive where they would actually do their work. That drive took them 11 hours. Yeah, you just do the math, right? Like, that's put your car in idle and drive to Livingston. Sounds fun, right? Except for it's not over a paved road. Like the reason you're going 10 miles an hour is because you're on a bucking Bronco for 11 straight hours. Once they got there, there were several nights where they didn't have food to eat. They had breakfast, but not lunch or dinner. There was oftentimes, he said, there was no electricity in the evenings. I was like, what do you do when there's no electricity? He said, it's just pitch black. What do you do in the middle of Haiti when it's pitch black at six o'clock at night or whatever it was? He said, oh, we'd get out the guitar and we would sing songs. I thought, that's not what I do at 6 o'clock in the night when it's pitch back. I'd be in the fetal position begging for mommy. (laughs) So part of what I love about Jack is he's human. And part of what he was saying to me over lunch is like, I don't know if I'm going back to Haiti, Adam. Like, I think I can serve people here for very logical reasons. And I I just had this privilege of sitting across the table from this, this hero, who's also real and going, boo, that was exhausting and horrifying and 48 hours in airports to get back to Helena. That's like communist Russia for two days, right? I mean, just horrible, horrible stuff. And as he was talking about all that, then he started talking about, like now he's walking the halls at Carroll and students are going like, hey, next time you go to Haiti, I'm in. And he's going, what do you mean next time I go to Haiti? And he's having these interactions with students after Haiti. And if you know Jack, you know he's got decades of relationships with students. You can't go anywhere with Jack without somebody, whether he's a cook at the windbag or somebody somewhere, going, hey, Jack, hey, Jack, who's that? Oh, he was a student of mine. And, and they would do anything for Jack. And as we were having this conversation, I, I just, uh, I hate to be the guy who's like, hey, I preached that sermon last week. But it's like, Jack, 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 wait, 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 do you see what's happening here? Like you're trying to figure out why the pain and is the pain worth it anymore? And you've got grandkids to serve. And in a parent disconnected fashion, you're saying, I've got these relationships with students and I wouldn't trade anything for the, in the world for them. And I had the privilege of going, hey, Jack, there's purpose to the pain and you can't get rid of one and still have the other. And yet there's the human component of going, okay, but by Wednesday of my time in Haiti, I don't know what my purpose is anymore. It's just be home with wife and kids. Like, you ever notice that you just forget? Got to visit a young couple this week, who, or a couple this week who had their first uh, baby. And my wife's an OB nurse, and so her and the mom, like, nerded out on all these gross facts, and they're talking, da 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 And I'm just like, la, 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 trying, and I'm talking to, to the dad, like, hey, so how about the NCAA tournament? And, and, and I heard her say, like, there was this point where the pain was such, I don't know the pain. I've not had the pain. I'm grateful for not having had the pain. Does this sermon have a biblical point? 
the pain. But there's this point where she's like, I'm just going like, I am never doing this again. Never doing this again. One child, I'm giving birth to one child. This is horrible. And then just a few minutes later, she's describing her, her brand new son on her chest. And she's going, oh man, this was awesome. And I overheard as I was talking to the dad, she's going like, I could do this like another time or maybe three times, maybe four times, maybe five times. And then the dad's going like, five times? What, what are you talking about here? <laughs> there's the pain and there's the purpose and they're linked. And I guess the conversation that I feel like we have to have, because listen, I, I know a lot of you guys. You, you're part of this movement because purpose is in your blood. What movement? And yet so is having to cook dinner and pay bills and go through life and you just lose it. And that's where I'm excited about some of the characters in Samuel because I think they can help us mightily here. And the irony is that the characters that we're going to look at this morning are, are the villains in the story. They're these guys, we'll just refer to them as Eli's sons. And if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Eli was the priest of Israel at the time. Israel didn't have a temple in Jerusalem. They had a tent in Shiloh. The people came there to worship The idea was that God provided these priests. Eli was the head one. By this time, he's kind of a figurehead, doesn't really do much. He just kind of sits around and looks pretty. And his sons are, they're the doers. They're the workers. You know, they're like, they're they're the... Are you going to read the text? They're the ones actually carrying out the tasks. And the text says some very distinct things about these guys. These are the heir apparents. You you can answer it and tell them we're talking about Eli. Verse 12 says this. Uh, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, I've had some people say some terrible things about me, I'm sure, even sometimes to my face. Scoundrels? Uh, Actually, the word shows up in other places in the Bible, plagues. Like, I know you've been mad at your husband, but you've never accused him of having the same value as a plague. Like, no good, all bad, nothing good comes from that. Unless you think the text is just leveraging name-calling without rationale, what follows is some rationale. The first thing it tells us is that these guys were thieves. They, they, were, they were embezzlers. You see, the worship system at this time was you brought your, your sheep, and you actually didn't just bring any sheep. You brought your best sheep, something we're going to talk more about next week with Kate as we talk about music and why we sing and worship and all those things. But, but you, you bring your sheep, and the idea was, was once the sheep was being offered, once it was being sacrificed, once it was being cooked burnt up for God, the priest got to come along and the priest got to stick a, a fork in it, not a pun, like you got to stick a fork in it and whatever, whatever meat came with the fork became your provision for the future, like for, for that day. The priest, that's what they got to eat. So uh, I suppose not unlike offerings here, like the staff salaries are paid from what goes in those buckets. We don't have a money tree anywhere. There's not a grant, like that, that's the way the system worked. And so the priests, uh, what they decided was they, they didn't want cooked meat. They didn't want half cooked meat. They wanted the meat before it was cooked. Now, you can only speculate what the advantage would be of having it before it's cooked versus while it's cooked. And I have to think that, that if they wanted it before it was cooked and they wanted to not just stick a fork in the pot and see what came out, I have to wonder if they were also wanting the best part of the meat. Like if they're going to go that far, what's to keep them from saying, no, no, no we, we want, we want the, the reserved pieces of the animal. And some of the worshipers, uh, they, they weren't keen on it. They understood what the way it was supposed to work, and it came fist to blow, so to speak. It, it became a fight because they would stick up for themselves, these people. Why are you summarizing the story rather than reading the biblical text, Adam? Your job is to preach the word. Oh, I know. It's because you want to start a conversation. Yeah, okay. People and the, and the priests and their attendants would just take it anyway. I'm not interested in starting a conversation. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do... 
what he's not doing. I'm going to actually go and take a look at this text. Let's, let's read it, find out what's going on here. And uh, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 12, but let me give you a little bit of the background here. Uh, in chapter 1, we have the story of Hannah and, uh, and Elkanah and um, how Hannah was barren. She couldn't have children. Uh, Elkanah, I think her husband, uh, was also had another wife, and she bore children just fine, uh, but Hannah didn't, and she was actually taunted and tormented by uh, Elkanah's other wife. And, uh, and so they go up to the tabernacle at Shiloh. This is before there was a temple. And Eli is the priest, he's the high priest there, and uh, and she's praying to the Lord without actually saying any words. Her her lips are moving, but no words are coming out. And he he thinks she's drunk, and she's not. And uh, you know he tells her to put her her wine away, and she says, "Oh no, I'm distressed in spirit." And and uh, and basically, you know, says, "May the Lord give you what it is that you're asking for." And it turns out she was asking for a son. In fact, she was, in a sense, making a deal with God. Let me read chapter 1, verse 11. And she vowed a vow to the Lord and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on my on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So she uh, you know, basically is saying, I'll give you, you give me a son, but I'm going to give him back to you and he can be a Nazarite. That's basically what was promised. So she did conceive, she did give birth to a son. The son that she gave birth to was none other than the prophet Samuel. Yeah, he's, and Samuel is one of these guys, he's, he's a crossover. He's, he is part prophet and part, um, uh, part judge you know, from the book of Judges. And so he's you know, kind of the transition from the judges to the prophets. And uh, and so we pick up now. The story has an interesting turn um, at uh, at chapter two, verse twelve. It says this: Now the sons of Eli were worthless men; they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests and the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest. Uh, would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now, If if and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, and the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. Now, Hannah had brought Samuel to the... Uh, to the tabernacle and basically dedicated him to the Lord, and now he's being raised by Eli. And uh, so Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make uh, for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord, so then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons, two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing 
all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, this is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Yeah, so you, you you got this interesting story, you know, going on at this point. And so, you know, the kind of this is the transition into the next uh, portion of it. And what's fascinating is, is that the Lord be- comes to Samuel and begins to reveal his word to him. And uh, and the, one of the first words that the Lord gives to Samuel is uh, is about the death of uh, of these evil, wicked dudes. And uh, and so it's fascinating stuff that's going on in the story. In fact, it's so much better than what Adam Hushka is saying. If you actually take the time to read the story, you'll notice there's no mention in there about how uh, how <laughs> Eli's sons had discovered their purpose, but apparently had so quickly forgotten it. it in fact, it, let me read again First Samuel 2.12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. There they are, serving at the Lord's tabernacle for the Lord's people, and they didn't know the Lord. They didn't even have faith, in, and, and their actions are sinful. It's all sinful behavior, and they were those were great sins, and it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So interesting stuff going on, but Adam Hushka, he's not interested in ending conversations, doesn't think he has the right to have the last word. He just wants to start a conversation, and so that's what he's doing with this text. And he sees in here... You know, some kind of, you know, provocative things that we need to consider. You know, what, what, why is it that after we discover our purpose, we, we so quickly forget it and suffer from purpose amnesia, which is what he thinks this text is about. The text, someone's sitting on their phone. Uh, the, the, the text says this, This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they are treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So you go, okay, well, that's bad. It gets worse. The other thing the text tells us is that Eli's, uh, his sons, they, they, were, they were guilty of sexual abuse. They had all this position and all this power and all these robes and all this trust and, and all this influence, and they were using it to coerce women for sexual favors. Now, I know it's hard to imagine men with a lot of power using that power to coerce women for sexual favors, but you just kind of have to imagine a world when that happens. And this is, this is terrible, obviously. And especially it's terrible because the the world in which the the Jewish people were living were surrounded by sexual practice that the temple and worship was the same thing. And I know it's easy to read the Bible and go, that's barbaric. But to be fair to the text, every time you do that, you have to go, that's barbaric. But relative to the surrounding culture, it was progressive. See, other other cultures, the way they worshipped was with the the, the priests. they, They got anything they wanted sexually. In fact, one of the major forms of, of, of worship was sexual acts. And so you and your wife, you may go worship, and part of her worship was to have sex with the priest. And they've stepped right back into this. And it's gross. The text says, now Eli was very old. Not sure why we had to clarify that. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
And I don't know about you, but here's where I so value that 15 minutes of chair time and just starting the day by slowing down and going, oh yeah, I was an idiot here, here, and here, and thanks God for your grace. But a couple months ago, as I was reading through 1 Samuel, I happened upon this story, and my first inclination was, like, how does that happen? How do a couple priests entrusted with so much, given so much power, how does that happen? And yet some of you who... who, who It's because they're sinners. They're sinful by nature. This is what sinners do. Who maybe work in law enforcement or in therapy. Maybe you work with students who are abused. You're already a step ahead of me because you go, how does it happen? It happens. And quickly for me, what happened in the course of about 15 minutes was the, the, the camera lens flipped a little bit. And you quickly start going, wait, wait, wait a minute. Is this a story about priests who got off the mark? Or is this a story about humanity who so easily forgets? Uh, no, it's about humanity that is born dead in trespasses and sins. See, what makes us sinners is not that we commit individual sins. No, the reason we commit sins is because we are sinners by nature. Sin is primarily a condition that we've inherited from our parents, Adam and Eve. It's a corruption of our human nature, which is why we sin. Like, do, do, you read, do you read about the priests in order to demonize them and ridicule them and say, oh, those scoundrels, look at what they're capable of? I don't know anybody who reads this text that way or for that purpose. Or do you read the story of the priests and go, oh, man, I started this business and I was just going to be the most servant-hearted business leader in all the town and the staff was going to love it. And now it's about me. And I became a teacher and it was all about serving these kids and now I hate the kids. And I, I, listen, I understand there's all kinds of tri- tricky conversations here as we talk about profitability and serving people and all those things. But I think we can all probably appreciate starting down a path where the goal was to serve people and arriving at a place where you had lots of power and it was about you. Yeah, see, the thing is, despite our good intentions, we all still have our sinful nature. Read Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Who will save me from this body of death? But there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Adam Hushka here seems to be befuddled and not know what to do with this whole, you know, what's causing all of this? Why do we so easily forget? Answer, because we're sinners by nature. You know, I heard a story recently about a, it was in a podcast interview with a guy named Simon Sinek who just wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last, didn't know that in the Marine culture, uh, Marines, it's not written in their code of conduct, but the lowest ranked people get in the chow line first. And so he wrote a book about uh, this whole concept of leaders eat last, but he said he was about a half-ish way into the book and he decided he was done. He was going to quit. It wasn't good enough. He'd already taken upfront money from the publisher. He was kind of panicking. He'd told people this was coming out. There'd been public kind of declarations that this thing was coming out. And so in the midst of his panic, he went for a walk. And his whole point of the walk was to strategize, how am I going to get out of this? He figured out how he could repay the money. He figured out how he could offer some condolences to the public. He figured out how long it was going to take his reputation to recover. He got back home and kind of on a whim, he called a good friend just because he sensed he should. His friend was a, was a retired Air Force special ops helicopter pilot. He flew helicopters. They've, they've been retired since called the Pavlo. They, they take a very powerful soldiers into very dangerous places. 
And his friend, who used to fly these things, began to tell him of his last mission in Afghanistan. He said, one of the last assignments that I was given, it was, it was undoubtedly a suicide mission. He said, the orders came, there were several helicopters, dozens of men involved. The orders came in, and we knew that there's only one outcome of this mission, and that was that we all die. He went on to explain that it wasn't even the type of mission where you go like, okay, but there will be sacrifice, good things happening from our sacrifice. He said, no, no, this was like terrible mission, the type of mission, like Black Hawk Down kind of stuff, where we knew we were all toast and no good would come from it. So they went out, and in their nervousness and nervous energy, they went out to the tarmac, and they were preparing their helicopters. They were standing around wondering what what they were going to do. And he was kind of the go-to guy. And one of the other pilots who would be his wingman in this mission, he finally looked at him and he said, what do we do? And the, the, the anxiety was, was obvious. What do you do? What do we do? He said, do we, do we refuse to fly? And this man took a deep breath and he looked at his buddy and he said, I'll tell you what we do. We fly. Because that's what we signed up for. And so we fly. Now, the mission was canceled and the guy's alive to tell the story. But the more time I send with the sons of Eli, the more I think, I don't know that I should be amazed by people who deviate. I don't should know that I should be amazed by people who abuse their power. Maybe I should be amazed by people who stay on target. That's what's amazing. You and I, we, finding a mission, finding something to give our life to, piece of cake, staying the course. Like, like he's 18 months and still not potty trained and you're going like, why did we do this? That's the hard part, right? I read a story re- recently about a guy named uh, Vitold Plecki. It's spelled with a W, but because I know how to speak Russian, <laughs> I don't. Uh, Vitold Plecki was born in 1901 in Russia. And they say that when, uh, had he heard those words, he would have cringed. Because Vitold was a proud Polish man whose family was involved in the uprising in Poland in 1860. Uprisings designed to give Poland independence. And because of those uprisings, all the powerful, influential, kind of go get him families were moved into Russia as punishment. So he was born there, grew up there maintained strong ties to the Polish identity, joined what would be the equivalent of the Boy Scouts, which was an illegal Polish group of young men who were continued to taught to think about Polish independence. As World War I kicked into gear, it became apparent this was their chance to get independence. Vitol dropped out of high school and as a teenager joined a militia kind of guerrilla group within Poland, fought for Polish independence. After World War I was over, Poland was granted its independence. Vitold rejoined high school. He, he re-enrolled in high school. He eventually graduated from a military academy. And from there, life happened fast. He was married. He had two kids. He inherited the family estate from Belarus. And then World War II happened. I have no idea what any of this has to do with um, the story of Eli's sons. No clue whatsoever. And he was a lieutenant in the army. And some of you will remember Poland, uh, they collapsed almost immediately. Vitold stayed put, though. He joined another group of Christian uh, militiamen who, who were like hell-bent, so to speak, on making sure that Poland was once again its own country. They fought for their independence illegally, kind of sabotage style. And it was then that they discovered that there was this camp that no one had ever heard of called Auschwitz. And they were horrified. They initially assumed, like, great, this means the Allies are going to show up quick. And of course, they learned what we all know, that the Allies either knew and weren't doing anything about it or didn't know. 
And so this, this small militia of men, they decided they would liberate Auschwitz. So... In 1941, I believe it was, Vitold kissed his wife and two kids goodbye and with falsified papers in his pocket, purposely walked into a German roadblock. His design was to get arrested, thrown into Auschwitz, and then he had a series of commissions, a series of objectives that he needed to accomplish so that he could get the necessary information so that his kin, so that his, his guys could come liberate Auschwitz. He spent 947 days in Auschwitz. The journals that were eventually captured of his speak of of his experiencing all the horrors of Auschwitz. The dehumanizing medical experiments, the starvation, the abuse, the droves of people going into the gas chambers. And on the 948th day, Vitold escaped, but only after completing every task given him by those men. Now, if here I told you that Vitold at that point decided he was going to put his feet up and wait for the war to end, none of us would blame him. He didn't. He found a British battalion and joined them and continued to fight the Germans. Eventually, of course, the Allies won the war, and Vitold, along with all of his Polish friends, quickly discovered that the war was over for most people, but it wasn't over for Poland. Their enemy immediately became Soviet Russia. He once again joined another militia. He was eventually arrested in the Battle of Warsaw, was sentenced to three life counts, and was executed in Soviet Russia. And they have his final words. And they say something, basically, basically they say, I'm going to die. And that's as it should be. Because this is what my life is for. For Poland. Now, I know there's some sentimentalism there, but when I contrast that with Eli, I just can't help but think Eli's the norm. His son's story, that's what's typical. It's Vitold, it's the Air Force pilot, it's guys like Jack. It's not that they don't feel fear, it's that they don't allow it to control them. It's not that they don't ever get out of focus, it's that they get back in focus. That's what's rare. Yes, yes, and the Vitold that you described there is uh, as a guy who um, literally is um, you know, bearing fruit. He said he was a Christian. He's bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So the idea here is um, we are all born dead in trespasses and sins. We conduct our lives as dead in trespasses and sins, and that's the norm for all human beings, sinners that we are. You know, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So, yeah, he says it's rare to find people like these other guys who are selfless and live for others, and, and yet he said that he was a Christian. Right. It is rare, isn't it? So let me ask you. It's not about, let me, let me ask you, is, is it about the mission? Is it about the purpose? Or is it about remembering it? It's about neither the mission, the purpose, or... Yeah, no, it's about Christ and him crucified for our sins and bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. That's what it's about. Like, when, when did you first come to the realization that life works best when it's not about you? Uh, when Christ turned me around. Uh-huh. I bet you you've had that moment. See, what strikes me is that what, what Eli's sons forgot and what Vitold remembered, they're the same thing, aren't they? The exact same thing. One group of guys forgot. What makes you think Eli's son, sons forgot that? It says they didn't know the Lord. 
they were behaving as unregenerate sinners. That's how unregenerate sinners behave. That moment in their youth where they went, wait, you, you mean to tell me that we get to serve God and people in this way? Sign me up. Another group of guys went, okay, I'm going to keep returning. We fly because that's what we signed up for. You know, Jesus, he, he seems to be well aware of how easy it was to get pulled off mission. The temptations are one great example of that. And he even talked to his guys, like, guys, 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 I know you're having these big celebrations and you've all like tattooed my name on your arm. I'm telling you, it's trickier than that. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. So there's a sense where Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Staying on course. That's the hard part. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What's he what does he mean staying on course is the hard part? Where did Jesus say that? That's not what he was saying at all. Saying there, he, he's telling the story of Vitold. How easy it is to exchange your purpose for something that is trivial. And he goes on in Matthew 20, he, he says, Jesus called them together. Like they, his guys had an argument about who gets to sit on the throne and who gets to wear the hat. And he says, hey, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, I know I'm moving fast here, but here's simply my point. Whatever the purpose is, whatever it is, I'll bet you at the core of it is a passion to serve people, is a passion to put people before yourself. And Jesus goes, that'll be tough. You know, I found myself this week wondering, and this is thin ice, but I kind of like it there sometimes, at least intellectually. I found myself wondering this week, I wonder if, I wonder if the reason why our culture, and oftentimes us, especially those of us who've sat around church for a long time, I wonder if part of the reason it becomes so easy to, to discount Jesus is because his message is, is so familiar. Now, we, we could argue about whether or not historically he was the first one to bring it to the table. That's not my point. But if you want to hear a rousing message about go give your life to others, you don't necessarily need Jesus for that. And I wonder if part of the reason, especially those of you raised in evangelical context, part of your disillusionment is, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't have a mon monopoly on that message. We can get that message from lots of places. And I found myself this week going, you could be right. And I wonder, was Jesus' message, like, did he claim he's the only one who had it? Or did he claim that with him you could do it in a way that you otherwise couldn't? What on earth are you talking about? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For there is no other name given by which men must be saved. That's Christ. <laughs> oh. he, he doesn't understand original sin, Christ penal substitutionary atonement. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Adam Hushka actually denies that Christ bled and died for our sins. He He's turned Jesus into some kind of postmodern moral lawgiver kind of guy, but he, that's, yeah, we continue. 
You know, it strikes me that that in John 15, Jesus was very clear with his guys. He knew it was coming. He knew how hard it was going to be. And he said to them, hey, I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, those are big words. But I'm starting to think Jesus' claim of the importance of living a life that was about others, that wasn't all that unique. What was was, hey, you you live with me. You stay close to me. You check in with me on a daily basis. I can keep you on mission. There's something. What if, so Jesus' message, hey, stick with me, buddy, and I'll make it so that you can stay on mission. What? Where are you getting this? Something he says just a little bit earlier than this that it just irks me every time I read it because it seems so trite, but I believe it because he said it. He says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will, be, will do the works I've been doing and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. See, Jesus' message, I don't think he was claiming like, hey, I've got a whole brand new idea. No one's ever thought of it. Serve people. I think what made him unique was he's going, hey, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of the release of the Holy Spirit into your lives, because of what it means to live with God, you can do it. You know, there's lots of ways to attempt at going after life. I guess I follow Jesus because I believe that with him, with him, it's just a lot more doable. With him, we... So life is way more doable with Jesus. Notice that's going to end put you in law, not gospel. We have power that we don't have otherwise. With his Holy Spirit working through us, we have capabilities that we didn't have before he was in us. Listen, I don't know what your trade is. I don't know what your profession is. I don't know where it is where you go, here's my call to serve people. But it strikes me that Jesus' invitation is, hey, let me join you in that, and I'll keep you on point. Yeah, you'll deviate, but I'll nudge you back. (laughs) What? How? What what does this have to do with the story of Eli's wicked sons? You know, this morning, I I just want to end by by giving you a chance to reflect and pray, and so this will be different if you're a regular in this culture, but I just want to, I just, I I sincerely just want you to kind of, let's just pray. Everyone close their eyes. That that's the sermon. That's it. I I just wonder if you know Jesus didn't come up with the idea of you know that life is better if you live it for others. But maybe he was saying that you know I, I can help nudge you and keep you on task so that you don't suffer from purpose and amnesia. Let's pray. What <laughs> what was that? I I remember there was a Wendy's commercial in the 80s that I grew up with, and there was this old lady who was asking, where's the beef? Where where was the beef in that sermon? What was that? I feel like it's like there was business that needed to be accomplished, and it didn't get it didn't happen. It's like. You know, somebody was supposed to do something and and it wasn't done. And now what do you do? <laughs> I mean, he thought it had something to do with Jesus's death and resurrection, for which I'm very thankful. But my question is, 
what bearing did that have on any of this? And, and oh, man. Of course, he doesn't want to make statements. He just wants to ask questions. Well, <laughs> you start a conversation, right? <laughs> so there you go, folks. There, that was what we call an Adam Hushka conversation starter. And um, I think that's kind of the whole point that he wanted is to be able to walk away and then start a conversation. So um, <laughs> uh, that was not a sermon. Discuss, discuss, you know, amongst yourselves. Wow. <laughs> and it's weird. I've got to end the program now because we're done. And I don't feel like I've finished, but we're done. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>